All right, welcome to Spirit Mornings here on the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Are you ready for some scripture? And the way we know more is through the Word of God. Absolutely. I'd like to welcome this morning Sharon Doran, serving as the Teaching Director of Seeking Truth. And uh, Sharon, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year, Bruce. And to you too. And Happy a continuing, birthday too. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> January 4th. I tried to let that slide by quietly. It's not but getting past us. No, Happy somehow. birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, Sharon. Well, uh, we are delighted to have you with us. Uh, we've been getting, as I said, a tremendous response, mm-hmm. a wonderful response to our study of uh, John, which is uh, what we're going through here. And uh, Seeking Truth, uh, the Bible study has actually been going on for a while at uh, Creighton Prep on mm-hmm. Thursday evenings. Right. And uh, you've got some information about that you well, want to share with folks. Yeah, we started in September and um, we're, we're through our first semester and it's just been such a joy and people are so excited. And uh, I just want to tell everybody we are having two visitors days in January. If you want to say, gee, I've never done a Bible study, I really don't know what it is, just come and join us. Um, it's open to the public on January 13th. 13th, Thursday evening, and also January 20th. And it's at Creighton Prep at 7.30 p.m. We start right on time, so come a few minutes early, and uh, we will welcome you, and we'll have a special group just for visitors, and you'll get to just take part in the evening. We finish promptly at 9.15. We'd love to have any visitors come. All right, so there it is, folks, an open invitation, an open house for the Seeking Truth Bible study. That's right. All right, the 13th and 20th, and that's at Creighton Prep. Mm-hmm. All right, Sharon, it was last year when uh, we left off, and uh, we We are in uh, John 2, and uh, we're going to pick things up at verse 13 today. Sounds good. And Bruce, before you start reading, Mm -hmm. just remember we had just come from the wedding feast at Cana. We had been at a wedding. Do whatever he tells you. That's right. Okay, good. Okay, so. (laughs) All right, so we start at verse 13, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to go through verse 25 here, everybody. Uh, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. 
All right. Great. Wow, here we go. Okay, here we go. There's a lot here. Uh, Jesus is clearing the temple court, and uh, John is the only gospel writer to include this so early in his account. The synoptics all have it, but it comes much, much later, and I, I believe John has it twice. And so right here at the beginning in chapter 2, he has Jesus clearing the temple. Well, we know that every year Jesus uh, and his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. We t- we're told in Luke 2 uh, that uh, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast. And you remember he was in the temple teaching the elders. They were amazed uh, at his knowledge. His 12-year-old kid was teaching the the temple elders. So uh, Jerusalem was a familiar place for Jews to go back in the day, and there were three required feasts. They all, every able-bodied male was to attend Passover, Shabbat, which was also called Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Mm -hmm. So it's Passover time, and they're heading to Jerusalem. And this miracle has just happened in Cana. Um, The temple was huge, huge, huge to the Jewish people because it's at the temple where they make atonement for sin. Sacrifices went up day and night, day and night, day and night. Atoning is the only way to rid themselves of sin. Um, And so that temple, uh, we're told, had taken 46 years so far to build. So let's just do a little temple history. This temple at Jesus' time, uh, when Jesus would have been there now in his 30s, this is Herod. Herod's temple, and it's Israel's second temple, but it's really a rebuilt temple. Uh, The very first temple was King Solomon's temple, the first physical temple, but the Jewish rabbis will tell us that really creation, creation was God's very first temple. And uh, creation, we get the beautiful account in Genesis 1 and 2, but really the roof of of, uh, God's crowning glory, the roof uh, of the temple originally was God's Sabbath rest, and that is when humans came into full covenant with God. All the work of creating was done. God rests and invites us into this full communion with Him, this full covenant, and we are created in His image and likeness and clothed with that original justice, and so God's temple was there. God's temple is where God is present and where he had invited man to come into relationship with him. So so then after the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, everything changes. Man's banished from the temple. Man's kicked out of the garden, not because God's mean, but because God is so, so incredibly merciful. Because if man picks from the tree of life, he'll forever be separated from God. And the tree of life is in the center of the garden. That's Jesus Christ. That's Eucharist. That's the tree of life gives us this forever food. And they can't pick from it yet because they're not in right relationship with God. God doesn't want them permanently separated from him. So in his greatest mercy, he banishes them from that original temple. So they go on and um, the, the, only location for that temple, Jacob has a dream in Genesis 28. He, he has a dream, and uh, he showed the, the heavens open and the Son of Man coming, descending down with angels, and then he goes back up. There's this staircase, and uh, the, he marks this place. He pours oil on this place, and he marks it, and it's called Bethel, which means house of God. This is where that future temple will be constructed years, several years later. Mm-hmm. But uh, that will come in Solomon's reign, King Solomon, David's son, David. David wanted to build this temple for the Lord. David had such a heart for the Lord after he repented of his sin with Bathsheba. And uh, God says, no, it's not going to be you. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And so uh, when Solomon 
comes into reign, he does construct that temple, and it's going to take him seven years to build it. Uh, The interesting thing is Solomon also makes a temple for himself, and his house is going to take 13 years to build. Uh, But at the time, Solomon uh, had prayed for wisdom. He was young. He prayed for wisdom. God granted him wisdom. He builds his temple, just like all the specifics said. But then uh, his kingdom, we know, later becomes divided because of his sinfulness and his divided heart. And the whole temple um, uh, is going to be compromised because the Babylonians will capture, uh, there will be an exile in 586 BC where the people are exported to Babylon. And oh, how they missed the temple. They wept and they longed for the temple because the temple was everything. The temple was where the the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. The temple was where they could atone for their sin and be be reunited with God. And so I love uh, Psalm 137, that first line, by the river of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Oh, how they longed for the temple. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And so, oh, how they longed for the temple. And uh, that temple got destroyed, the the temple that Solomon built. And so after the exile, uh, when they're freed and they get to go back in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, a new temple is built. And that temple is built by Zerubbabel, and he's the governor of Judah at the time, and, and he's the prime builder of this second temple. This is the one that's later going to be reconstructed by King Herod in the day of Jesus. And so uh, when they built that new temple, it was much smaller than Solomon's temple, and it was much much less grandiose. And in Ezra 3, we're told in verse 12, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this new temple being laid. So it wasn't near what the old temple was. And and it says the weeping was loud. The sound was heard from far away for many days. And also, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Because as we uh, were talking about with Mary last time, the Ark had the true presence of God. The Ark wasn't there. According to the book, of Maccabees, uh, Jeremiah had hit that ark on Mount Nebo where Moses was buried in Jordan. And that's in 2 Maccabees 2. That ark was sealed in a cave and it has never been found. Even 2,000 years later, it has still not been uncovered. And I think that's interesting because um, the Catholic Bible contains the book of Maccabees 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, Protestant Bibles removed those books. And so it's very important. There's a real important clue in 2 Maccabees 2, verse 5. When Jeremiah arrived there, he found found a room in a cave in which he put the tent, the ark, and the altar of incense. Then he blocked up the entrance, and some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the path, but they could not find it. So God had sealed this ark away. And uh, then later in Jeremiah 3, verse 16, uh, Jeremiah, the same guy, Uh, has a prophecy, and he says, In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. And so most scholars agree that that Ark was never placed in the second temple. It disappeared from the biblical story during that first temple time, and it it really cannot be traced afterward. So there's this spiritual vacuum. Although they have a new temple now, it's not as grand, but they have the temple, but there's no ark there. 
there's no ark in this temple. And so eventually, uh, when Herod the Great comes into rule, he is going, you know, he was an incredible architect and builder, Mm -hmm. and he wants to make this spectacular structure. Uh, It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful physical temple, and uh, even more beautiful than Solomon's. Uh, Although... There's so much corruption. Uh, the the high priests are corrupt. The institution has become corrupt. Uh, after the Babylonian exile, when they come back, there's just so much corruption. Um, the, the country has been Hellenized by Alexander the Great is in rule. Um, Egypt has taken over. Um, there's a, a huge battle. And, uh, oh, it, it's such a great book of history to read Maccabees, but it's a little bit complicated. But um, I do encourage Catholics to read it because it's a book we have, and it helps us understand this time right before Jesus, because in 167 BC, just a you know approximately 150 years before Christ came, um, Antiochus had had ordered an altar built to Zeus in the temple, in the temple of God, in the Jewish temple, an altar to that's how Hellenized they'd become, how Greek they'd become. And uh, he banned circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant. That's They had to be circumcised to be in God's covenant. And he ordered pigs to be sacrificed at the altar in the mm. temple. That was so non-Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so there was a huge Maccabean revolt. And that second temple, uh, Judas Maccabees, was, was a great Jewish leader. And that temple was rededicated and it became a religious pillar again for the Jewish Hasmonean kingdom. And uh, and when they rededicated it, that became the Feast of Hanukkah. And John's going to talk about that feast day too in, in, in John 10. So it's just important to know this history because we have this grandiose temple now, Herod's temple, but the ark's not there. And Jesus comes there today. Well, Sharon, I'm in awe. Just an absolutely fantastic explanation of the temple. Uh, uh, you know, throughout uh, the course of history with uh, the Jewish people. And we've reached a point where, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant itself was uh, never present in the latest incarnation of the temple. And the Son of Man walks in. That's right. And and uh, so we're in John 2. And uh, Jesus the Jews respond, what sign, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to clear this temple out? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, destroy it. I'll raise it up in three days. And they are furious. They say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. And he was raised. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples would recall what he had said. And so they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They didn't know what he was talking about. He's claiming to rebuild build this thing in three days, what has taken 46 years to build. And we know that in uh, 20 BC, Herod, King Herod announced that this old temple was going to be torn down and he would replace it with something truly magnificent. And the Jewish priesthood was was a little leery because uh, uh, Herod was an Edomite, kind of a puppet king, and, and he was going to have to quarry all these stones required for this huge building project, biggest building project ever. In fact, it was one of the uh, seven wonders of the world back then. Mm-hmm. And people would come, sometimes for past over, there'd be between one to four million people coming, and they were not all Jews. The, a lot of people were coming out of curiosity to see Herod's temple. What was Herod building? And this work was not entirely finished until 63 AD, 63 years after Christ. So, uh, and then it was only stood for seven years in yeah. completion, and then it was totally destroyed. Stop building those temples. They keep going up and they keep coming down. <laughs> and this one's never been rebuilt. Amazing. 
you know, 1,940, whatever I figured it out, uh, I have it written somewhere. It's almost 2,000 years later. It's never Mm -hmm. been rebuilt. So, so, um, uh, the disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. That comes from Psalm 69, verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me. This was his father's house. And what was happening is people were coming up for Passover as was required by Jewish law, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, and they had to buy a blemish-free lamb to celebrate their Passover. And there was temple money. Money at the temple had a different currency. And so there were money changers sitting all over the place. They could charge whatever, they could give whatever exchange rate they wanted. And I'm sure the temple priests had a little cut of that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the money exchangers, uh, you know, Christ walks in, and this is the only account too in John where he makes this whip of cords and he just, uh, it's a righteous anger, but he starts tipping over money tables and, and, and you can just about picture it because the people are getting ripped off. Mm-hmm. The exchange rate is not regulated. The temple authorities, the Sadducees, they're the wealthy arist- uh, they're the aristocrats, the ruling class of the temple. And so you get the idea. And, and this was to be a house for all to come. The temple, originally God's design in Isaiah 56, it's pre- predicted that um, it says in verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not just the Jewish nation. It was to be for all nations. The Jews were the firstborn son. They were the chosen ones, but they were to bring all nations to, to God. So um, you, you you just see that uh, the corruption, and, and Jesus is not happy about it. Even uh, this temple was so grand that when Roman soldiers would come over the hill and see the temple gleaning, this white stone gleaning in the sun, many of them were said to bow down and worship when they laid eyes on the temple. It was a magnificent place. Isaiah 2 also tells us that all nations will stream to the temple, right. and it's exactly what they were doing. And the synoptics, got, uh, they, they say... Uh, they bring this account in much later, like Matthew, not until chapter 21. But all the synoptics say, um, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Mm-hmm. So much corruption going on. Now, we see that um, that temple was destroyed 40 years after Christ's crucifixion, approximately 40 years. That's one biblical generation. If you remember, Moses was wandering around with the Israelites in the desert for 40 years years. And there are only two from that original generation that make it to the promised land. Moses doesn't even make it. Only Joshua and Caleb make it. They get 40 years and and, and, and they don't figure it out. Same thing here. This is kind of a prediction because there will be 40 years after Christ dies at around age 30 to 70 AD, one biblical generation to figure out Jesus Christ truly was the Messiah. He was the true presence of God. He mm-hmm. was the temple. Yeah, the living Ark of the Covenant. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so... Um, uh, and in Matthew 24, Jesus predicts uh, that that temple's going down. He predicts it way before he dies. He says, do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened here. It was 1,948 years, and it has not been rebuilt. No rebuilding has happened. If you go there, I went there last year, the stones are all piled up, one stone on top of another, just as he said, the stones haven't even been moved. They lay there. And uh, what sits on the Temple Mount now is is the Muslim Dome of the Rock. It sits right on that spot at the Temple Mount. And it's really a tense place to visit. You never know if you're going to get on the Temple Mount or not. You could go all the way to Jerusalem and it could be closed. If it's tense, they close it. Uh, when we went, we got to go, uh, it was open for less than an hour and we hit it just right and got to 
go on the Temple Mount, and it was pretty bare because it was quite tense. And um, the Muslims claim that Ishmael was sacrificed there, Abraham's son by Hagar. Uh, the Jews and Christians claim that, no, 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 it was Isaac, Abraham's son, the child of promise, not Ishmael. So not the child of the flesh, but the child of promise. And the Muslims also say that that's where Muhammad ascended. And so it, there's just, this is a tense place. And uh, Jesus is saying, hey, none of this is going to be standing here. None of this is needed because the true presence of God, I am God, Mm -hmm. and he's going to unleash the Holy Spirit after his death, which makes God everywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's significant too, because when Solomon, wise King Solomon, when he dedicated that very first temple, um, he said, the, the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I mean, the priest had to get out of the temple because the Shekinah glory, the cloud, it was just the glory of the Lord filled that temple. But in his beautiful prayer, Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, Lord. How much less this temple I have built for you. Can we really put God in a box? Solomon, with all his wisdom, knew that. That temple was a, a temporary solution to a permanent problem, man's sin. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to need a new temple. And here in John 2, Jesus says, I'm the new temple. I'm the new temple. They have no idea. I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Three days, that's the time in the tomb. That's the time when he rises from the dead. He's going to be the new temple. He's going to be the new covenant. He's going to be the new Shekinah glory, the light of the world. He's going to be the bread of life to feed all of us. He's going to be the gate back to the Father. John gives us all those I am statements, and they're all about the true presence of God and the true presence of God is standing in front of them, and they don't see him. So I just, that temple is important. It was important, but he doesn't want burnt bull after bull after bull after ox after lamb. You know, there's so many, he wants obedience. He wants our heart. He wants us to turn from sin. He wants us to repent. You know, it's so much more than just burning animals and then overcharging people for the burnt animals. So so that's uh, that's a little bit there about chapter two. And I think, uh, Bruce, if you would read for us uh, the very end of two going into three, because back then there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse numbers. Those were all added later. So we we have continuity. Can you start at John 2, verse 24 into three? I can do that. Uh, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. And as we move to John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Ooh, mm. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Enter Nicodemus. Nick at night. Um, <laughs> uh, he comes here in the first uh, time in John. He's going to come three times. But in this first time, he's coming under the cover of night. Um, he's in the dark. He is Nick at night. Um, but here in these verses you read for us, man is mentioned five times in yeah. those short verses. Man, 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 man. A testimony about a man. He knew he was a man. He's a man. And he's a man. Man. He is a man. And John is emphasizing there, this Greek, uh, in the Greek, it's anthropos. John is stressing Nicodemus is a mere man. He's a human man. He's a descendant of Adam. Mm-hmm. Adam, the, the earth. We are all dust. We're, we are dust, and unto dust we shall return. He's a man. He's a mere man. Okay, he's a Pharisee. That's a very elite group, a ruling group, a group uh, about 6,000 strong at the time of Christ, and a, a, an incredible brotherhood. They took a public oath that they would 
spend their entire life observing every detail of Mosaic law, mm -hmm. the ones in Torah and even ones that they added on, putting fences around the law even more than, than what God prescribed. So very, uh, very separate group, very into the Mosaic law. And there's a man, a very learned man named Nicodemus, one of the best teachers of Pharisaic law in all the land and all Jerusalem, no doubt. And uh, no doubt he had just seen what Christ did in the temple because that's where the Pharisees would hang out at the temple. So he sees Jesus clearing the temple. And, and oh my gosh, the authority with which Christ did that, uh, the signs he was doing. And we're going to see Nicodemus three times in John's gospel. This is the first time. The second time will be in John 7. And uh, there's some, there's there again as a fight with the Pharisees, and they feel that Christ is deceiving them. They don't think he's God. He's healing on Sabbath. He's, he's eating with sinners. He's doing things outside the law. How could this possibly be God? And they're, and they're furious. And Nicodemus is going to say, hey, uh, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him out? He says, let's give this guy a chance. Let's hear what he has to say. Right. And then uh, that's the second time. And then the third time is going to be at the burial of Christ in John 19. And by then, so so today he comes at night. He's he, he's curious. Then he, he says, let's hear this guy out. Let's give him a chance. And then in John 19, he will be the one that helps Joseph of Arimathea take the body down. He's going to give a king's ransom for that body. He will buy, it tells us in John 9, he's going to 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to, to bury that body. Mm -hmm. He knows this is a king. He is going to pay an exorbitant amount to say, to give Jesus a king's burial. And so... This is a natural progression of how his faith grows. And, you know, when we have testimonies, some people will hear the gospel and immediately come to belief. We, we hear people tell their story, and it's just an incredible, immediate acceptance of Christ. Mm -hmm. Others, it's a lifelong journey. Yeah. I, I, I uh, think that might be the more common route. God reveals himself gradually in salvation history over over many, many, many years by his words and deeds. The human heart is resistant. Why are we so resistant to Christ? Why why don't we just buy it immediately? But we are we 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 think we know quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And a we do free will and we oh, analyze right. and we look and we That's yeah. right. That's right. And so Nicodemus, you know, he's one of those gradual ones and he's a teacher of the law. He's a top Pharisee and all his comrades are saying you know, wanting to kill this guy. And he's, he hears, he hears mm -hmm. the truth. Something's there. Something's there in his heart. And so uh, let's see, should we, uh, should we talk a little more about, uh, I'll, I'll, there were Pharisees at the time, mm -hmm. there were Sadducees, and there were Essenes. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a separatist. What that really means is that they are loyal to God or loved of God. And it's extremely ironic in view of they are going to be the most bitter, deadly opponents of Jesus Christ and his message. And they are supposed to be the ones loved of God. Yeah. Uh, and then the Sadducees is that ruling class. They're, they're wealthier, and they are in charge, actually, of the temple and the ruling of the temple. And, uh, and then we have the Essenes, who said, uh, was another group that separated themselves and just said, you guys are crazy and we're, we're out of here. And they mm -hmm. go to a more hermit uh, existence on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, some of them were interspersed throughout. But uh, Bruce, will you continue now reading in yes. three and let's see what Nicodemus does. Okay, well, we'll just recap with one. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Mm -hmm. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Mm -hmm. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Hmm. Okay, thank you. So we have we have Nicodemus. He's a brilliant Pharisee, and he's coming at the dark of night. Can't you just see him uh, putting on his headdress and, and creeping around out in the black, pitch black, and he comes to Jesus' door and knocks, and, and he wants to have a conversation because he heard something, and he's curious. And right off the bat, he calls him rabbi, teacher. We know you're from God. Okay, that's a pretty big statement right there. He mm-hmm. has heard truth in his voice, but he can't let anyone know he's coming because how would that look? Yeah. And and so uh, here he comes, and uh, a man of great influence, a man of great leadership, coming, creeping around in the cover of night. And there, John is just so great with those themes because right in the prologue in chapter one, we had that light and dark theme. Here he is under the cover of dark, ashamed to come into the light. Uh, The darkness, remember when John told us in the prologue that the darkness will not overcome the light. The darkness, uh, light had come into the world, but the dark, uh, the world did not recognize him. So, so, Nicodemus doesn't want to be recognized, but he sees light. He he's heard light. He he knows there's something uh, that he doesn't that that he wants to investigate further. So he comes to Jesus, and we get that constant echo of the prologue. And uh, he says, "Rabbi, you are a teacher. You've come from God." Uh, if his comrades would have heard that, uh, they would have been, yeah. you know. And he says, he says um, that Jesus tells him that he must be born again. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, this is huge. He must be born again. And he, he's thinking, I can't climb back into my mother's womb and, and yeah. come out again. What are you talking about? How could it be that this wisest Pharisee cannot, this greatest teacher, this is the best Israel's got, and he's not understanding Jesus 101, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. He's the teacher of the law, and, and Jesus well, he's says... He's being so literal. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times Catholics say, um, if you ask a Catholic, have you been born again? <laughs> they're like, uh, 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 what? Yes, the answer is yes. Yes, you have. You've been born from above by the grace of your baptism. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that we are born of water and the Spirit. This is the institution of baptism right here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a little more complicated than the three minutes we have left, Bruce, <laughs> because I think we'll have to start here next time. Yep. But I just want to remind people that sometimes uh, you have been born by your baptism. It is a gift. And Catholics baptize infants because Peter said, 
said, this is for you and for your children and for all that are far away from God. This is in Acts 2. It is for our children. Would you not claim your child for Christ? You you sign up for soccer leagues and preschools and you, you do whatever you can to get into the best school. Would you not claim your child for Christ? This is the most important thing we can do. So we are born again at baptism by water and spirit. We're filled with grace and that grace will be stirred up time and time and time again throughout our lives, just like Nicodemus, this little inkling first, this this questioning first, and then going on to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I believe. And at the end, paying, giving all he has for a king's ransom, a king's burial. Uh, it's, it's, it's this beautiful journey of faith, this beautiful progression. And I think it's very symbolic of our lives, how we grow deeper and deeper and deeper in our walk with Christ, how the grace of our baptism is stirred up time and time and time again, and uh, how, how, how the church wants to keep us in this beautiful flock so that we have brothers and sisters around us, we have accountability, we have all the sacraments and all the graces we need time and time and time again throughout our lives to just stir them up and call on the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When we have those doubts, when we, it, it's it's just it's just we're human. We're human, and He wants us to be born of above. We are mere men, but He wants us to be born of above, born of Jesus Christ with water and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Sharon, awesome. My goodness. <laughs> we will start again then in two weeks with Nicodemus yes, and finish him. Yeah, we'll finish him off. Uh, he was a very, very fascinating study and uh, some uh, great background for everyone to kind of chew and ruminate on here over the next couple of weeks. And uh, again, uh, Sharon is uh, extending an offer for an open house for you to check out her Seeking Truth Bible study at Creighton Prep on Thursdays uh, with a free little uh, gathering, uh, an open house, if you will, on uh, the 13th and 20th of January. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Bruce. God bless you. You too. Sharon Doran, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.